Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. My first real job was as college archivist at University College Cork. During my time at Cork, I made some progress into sorting out almost 150 years of history, stored in basement strongrooms underneath UCC's picturesque quadrangle. These dark, dank strongrooms were filled from floor to ceiling with papers, photographs, bound volumes, paintings, artefacts, all the ephemera of academic life. The university's heritage was crammed into these damp rooms. There is a particular black dust unique to such stores. It's like a very fine coal dust. For me, that dust is magical as it signals untouched treasures. Research notebooks that contain the origins of Boolean algebra, written by a long-dead professor. An almost black canvas, which, when cleaned, was revealed to be a very fine oil painting. A panoramic view of the university from the hills to the north of the city. A black and white portrait photograph of a beautiful young Edwardian woman in academic dress, whose name remains lost. The architect Sir Thomas Dean's drawings on linen back paper dated 1847, visualising for the very first time the quadrangle of the new Queen's College Cork. These drawings were complete with a pencil outline sketch of the statue of Queen Victoria, situated on the plinth over the eastern gable of the Alla Maxima, so that she could gaze across the city towards the harbour. But heritage services do not exist just for the pleasure of their curators. At UCC, I oversaw a modest but effective public research service. And the users came from everywhere, members of the public, students, specialist scholars and university staff. Everyone had their own reasons for consulting the materials and each person was unique. An elderly retired professor of civil engineering became so excited on the day that he discovered that one of his predecessors had invented a technique which led to the development of cast concrete that he shook my hands so hard he broke two of my metacarpal bones. And many of the queries came in by post. I must have answered hundreds, if not thousands, of letters. In the early 1990s, I began some correspondence with a woman from Bradford who was seeking information on a female graduate who, to her knowledge, may have come from South Kilkenny or Tipperary, she thought it was from the hinterland around Carrick-on-Shore. The writer knew that this person had attended an Irish university in the 1930s, had studied mathematics and graduated with a BA. She did not have a surname for the student, but knew her first name. Not many women in Ireland studied maths in the 1930s, and very few did so at Cork. It was easy for me to find the name of a student that matched the writer's query. So I replied, outlining her name, home address, schools attended, leaving search results and father's occupation. A few weeks later, I got another letter asking for an appointment to see the records. At that time, there wasn't a formal reading room at the Heritage Services. 
requested records were brought from the stores and consulted at a desk in my office. The correspondent from Bradford quietly viewed the admission register, which contained the information that she had sought. She asked me had I any further records and I suggested that she might like to see the graduation register. This is a huge, leather-bound volume arranged chronologically, preserving the signature of every graduate since 1849. It was easy to find the signature we were looking for, written in black ink, clearly preserved on the vellum page, under the heading Autumn Conferings, 1937. My reader sat in silence, running her fingers over the ink again and again. Eventually she spoke and quietly said, You may not understand, but you have given me my identity. Born in 1940 and adopted at birth, this lady had been searching for her mother's name for many years. A routine entry in a bound volume, stored in a provincial Irish university archives, had delivered a previously forbidden truth. The lady never got to meet her mother, but the intimacy of her mother's handwriting gave life to a name and unlocked a hidden heritage. We all have our stories, hidden and unhidden. We must protect and make available these stories. They are our heritage, and heritage matters. It is our identity. I first heard the song The Flower of Maharali at a song circle in County Clare. 2017 was a fallow time for me emotionally and creatively. I rented a small cottage in Ballyvaughan in the heart of the Burren for the autumn and winter seasons that year. I was in solitary retreat, waiting patiently for a creative rebirth. In this cottage I lit peat fires, watched the mountain and healed. I began to write poetry about lighting peat fires, watching mountains and healing. I set a simple goal for my time there in that cottage overlooking Galway Bay to grant myself permission to speak in my personal and artistic voice. I have an artist friend who lives in the Burren, a genius painter born in Beirut, raised in Dublin, who's now a local of County Clare, his wife just planted a chilli farm in the limestone landscape and runs a Thai cookery school out of the back of her van. The locals line up in their droves in wet car parks to sample her sun-kissed gastronomy. A limestone power couple, these two. While I ruminated in my cottage, these friends extended a rich invitation. Daly's pub in Bell Harbour were having their weekly song circle 
County Clare boasts some of the best traditional music sessions in Ireland, they can be hard to find without the right invitation. This particular gathering of musicians and locals was not, however, the typical pure drop of Irish music, but more of a Mad Hatter's tea party of tradition and innovation. I don't remember everything from that night, for this particular session took place shortly before I gave up alcohol and entered the merciful embrace of sobriety, but I do remember sitting with my artist friend and his wife, the alchemical taste of Guinness and crisps, and witnessing a small community of locals immersed in listening and merriment. It became my artist friend's turn to break the silence, and, with grace, he lifted his chin and began to sing the Ulster love song, The Flower of Maharali. It's a classic Irish song of yearning for a love across a social divide, a chance encounter of a summer's morning that gives rise to a secret oath of love and admiration. I knew I would commit this song to memory and make my own of it, as my mother would say when she would pass on a song to me after dinner. It then became my turn to offer a song, which I did gladly. Strangely, I cannot remember the exact song I sang, but the small crowd there would not let me away with singing just one. This happens often when I sing. Singing is a part of me where I feel courageous, a naive bravery even. Daly's Bar in Bell Harbour got the full tilt of my talents that night as I devilishly embellished Irish songs poetic recitation or two. Maybe it was the Guinness and Crisps fueling the innovation. God be with the days. At the end of the night, during our protracted exiting process, a short, elderly, pot-bellied man approached me outside the door of the pub to compliment me on my singing voice. Thanks very much. It's quite an engine. Tis a gift, really, I said bashfully. Tisn't he exclaimed. "'Tisn't a gift,' he said. He looked deep into my eyes without missing a beat. "'Tisn't a gift. Short sure, tis handed down to "'Tis handed down to And as this man, this mystic, waddled off into the darkness, I turned, broadened, emboldened, buoyant. "'Tisn't a gift. Short sure, tis handed down to Out of that rich, regrouping time in Clare, Eventually came an entire book of poetry, my first collection, entitled Early Music. And here is the title poem. Early Music I learned to make music when I was alone, revering the moment before I began to sing, then break the solitary silence. I learned to love my own voice, making a friend of it, fashioning a fountain pen to master the phantom language, each Brandenburg concerto furrowing ground turned up loud while my father drilled his impossibly strong fingers on the steering wheel, careening the back roads of Burt Hill. My mother would sing alone for hours, Hildegard and Shannos seamlessly sung, light would stream in the sash window while she scribbled illegibly, preparing for a performance. I would drum my hands on my thighs till they were hot and red, 
repeating the same beat thousands of times, honing the same phrase. And in the evening we would gather around two candles and early music on cassette. Before the dissonance and serialism, an early music to keep us company. An instrumental combination to unlock conversation and make the silences dance like shadows in candlelight. No vocal music to deflect and distract from a small family huddled around only food and flame and the warm faint sound of wood and gut string, deepening every narrative, sharing harmony and conversation. A family that feels safe is sacred. Embryonic echo soundings still bounce back, reflected in the sound of early music. One pleasant summer's morning When all the flowers were springing My grandfather, John O'Leary, was a simple and loving old man, tall with a long white beard. He was the town baker in Grignamana, but his real passion was for local history and archaeology and old books. On his day off, he'd take the bus to Dublin and spend the day wandering around all the second-hand bookshops on the quays. One day, when he came home to Greg, he looked a bit shaken, and my mother, his daughter-in-law, asked him why. He told her about his day and how he walked up past Trinity College to find somewhere for his lunch. He found a grand, clean little place, he said, and he asked for his favourite meal, pink bacon on a blue plate. It was lovely, one of the tastiest dishes he'd ever had. But Mary dear, he said, the price of it. It didn't take my mother too long to work out that Grandaddy had wandered into Dublin's finest restaurant, Jamais. His house in Grignamana backed onto the 13th century Cistercian Abbey of Duisk. Indeed, many of the houses on Lower Main Street and along the quay cling to the walls of the abbey like mussels to a rock. When the family were trying to install new ovens for the bakery long ago, they found that they had knocked through into the tombs of the old monks. Reverently, they reinstated the wall. My grandfather, John, and his two cousins, Patrick and William O'Leary, spent their lives collecting bits of local history. They produced a number of booklets about Duish Gabby, about Ullard Church and about St Mullins. My grandfather did some of the research and most of the sketches. His cousins, who had a better education, did much of the writing. They searched out fragments of columns or carved stone which had been removed from the ruins of the old churches to stop a gap in a hedge or ornament a garden. They weren't professional archaeologists, but without their amateur efforts, precious parts of ruins would have been lost and people would have been less aware of these rich reminders of their past. Hubert Butler, the great essayist from Bennett's Bridge and my grandfather, 
were founder members of the revived Kilkenny Archaeological Society in 1945. My grandfather was its president for the first 12 years, during which time there was a famous row. Butler, who had attended some of the war crime trials in Yugoslavia after the war, went to a lecture in Dublin given by the editor of the Catholic paper The Standard in 1952. The lecturer described at some length how the communist regime of Tito persecuted Catholics. He said nothing, however, about the murderous campaign by the Nazis and their Croatian henchmen during the war to force Orthodox Christians to convert to Catholicism. He said nothing either about the failure of the Catholic hierarchy to distance themselves from this campaign. When Hubert Butler stood up at the end of the lecture to make this point, the papal nuncio, who was in attendance, walked out. There was mayhem. Insult to nuncio, screamed one newspaper headline. One forgets how powerful the Catholic Church was then. Local government bodies all over the country condemned Hubert Butler, a Protestant. Butler was shunned. A motion that he should resign from the honorary secretaryship of his beloved Kilkenny Archaeological Society was put but defeated. Butler, whose motivation in reviving the society was to have a cause on which Catholics and Protestants could unite, resigned voluntarily rather than be a cause of division. My mother, who gave me Butler's various essays to read, always felt that a great wrong had been done to him. She was right, and various bodies, including Kilkenny County Council, have since apologised for their votes of condemnation. What my grandfather thought, I don't know. But only a few years ago, Susanna Crampton, Hubert's granddaughter, gave me a cartoon done by one of Hubert's friends at the time of the controversy. It shows the famous Kilkenny Archaeological Society meeting in stormy progress. All those against Butler have devil's horns on their heads. All those who supported him have halos. Old John O'Leary, my grandfather, is pictured with half a halo on one side of his head and a devil's horn on the other. As president, chairing the meeting, he would have had a casting vote, but the majority in Butler's favour was decisive, so he never had to cast it. He was probably vastly relieved. Over the years, the two men remained as friendly as their very different social positions then allowed. The society they co-founded promoted new interest in the antiquities of Kilkenny. It saved the beautiful Roth House from destruction by buying it, a campaign in which members Maureen Hegarty, Sissy de Lockery, Daisy Phelan and Kitty Lanigan played a large part. Roth House is one of the finest Irish examples of a 16th century merchant's dwelling and that's where the Society's archive is now kept. It's a rich heritage, one which brought together two founding members of different creeds, class and education because they were, above all, proud Kilkenny men.
to read you a poem about something that fascinated me about Marley House in Rathfarnham in Dublin, and that is the history and the mysteries of its construction. Over the course of its lifespan, it's been repeatedly rebuilt, extended and restored, and that history remains a bit of a mystery. Uh, But there are clues to its construction in the ceilings you find of varying heights, the thick walls that must once have been exterior, the narrow passageways and unexpected corridors and hidden friezes that you find um, behind ceilings. Every house a statement. Taller doors, higher ceilings, old glass in the windows, leaded, intricate, detailed work. Sash windows with their hidden lead weights perfectly balanced for the hand to close without strain. Beams of pitch pine, the timbers as good as the day they were put in. No soft wood here. Banger blue slates cut from the quarry, sliced and graded, heaviest for the bottom, lightest at the top. Not factory made from cement, fibers and adhesives, or finished with a glaze that will quickly discolor. No plasterboard, instead lathes of timber, long woven with horsehair and skimmed with a hardened coat. Five days to prepare it. Once a ceiling is pulled down, no one is going to go to that bother again. You see the way things were done and without tools to make the job easier. The history of the trade is in there. If there is healing in nature, then the Barrow Track, the trail that borders Ireland's second longest river, is an infirmary. The river and its towpath run through three counties, beginning in Kildare, winding the full length of Carlow and becoming tidal at St Mullins in County Kilkenny. Carlow people claim the track is their own, although it has no favourites. It holds the rough drinkers and the morning ramblers in equal regard. Whether it's due to the quiet sanctuary it offers or the long stretches between the bends of the river. Something about its character makes it possible to straighten things out, to come to terms with a botherer, but an irritation to one side. With 70 miles of green, traffic-free space, the conversation will run out before the path does. In grief and sadness, the track will take a little of the weight, make it possible to get through another day. Bulrushes point skywards as the summer unfolds, and water irises give yellow greetings from their beds along the drains. The earth and grass underfoot change texture with the rainfall, and birds sing as they flit between the willows. In autumn, by the lockkeeper's cottages, I find plum and apple trees echoing another time. 
runners, cyclists, walkers and those who fish form part of the scenery, as do the distant mountains and pine forests. But if you think the bank is beautiful, you should see the barrow track from the river. I joined Carlo Rowan Club as a teenager. Years later, a returning emigrant. I'd swapped the skull for the kayak. She's gone to the dark side, I heard a rower say. In a kayak, river life reveals itself. Unlike most boats, a kayak can travel over rough water and shallow boulder gardens. It can bounce over weirs and can just for fun be launched from a high lock wall. On the barrow, kingfishers in brilliant blue act as sentries to the wild places. Otters play along the banks and herons hold their dignified stance as I pass. In winter, the floods form a torrent and when the water is low, rocks scratch the bottom of the boat. In recent years, I got back onto terra firma as a runner of the banks, the grassy pathway being easier on the knees. One morning before work, a cloud of mist lingering above the water like steam over a mirror, my friend and former crewmate Catherine and I took our usual 5k route. We reached the lock and turned, talking, setting the world to rights. On our way back, a man, halter swinging in his hand, asked, Have you seen a horse? Without as much as a break in her stride, my friend raised her arm, slung her thumb over her shoulder. Hoofprints, that way, she said, and then picked up the chat again, as if nothing unusual had happened. For a moment, I was in a Western movie and my friend was a Native American tracker. I shook my head, gathered myself. The world was still not pinned down, we had more to discuss. I wondered if I'd imagined that brief equestrian exchange. We finished our run and I added the horse tracker incident to the list of enchanted moments on the banks of the River Barrow where imagination and reality dance their eternal walls. Where every visit is a story and every memory of that story is a wholesome cure. Rain falls against the shining limestone of the new city and county archives building in the old Blackpool district of Cork. Late November rain, wind-swept and savage and unforgiving. I've raced across the city on foot, not trusting the flow of heavy traffic, but I've reached the door of the archives in one piece, and the attendant lets me in where I can dry off with the help of a towel before signing the visitor's book and storing my wet satchel in a cubby hole. Soon I am in the reading room, wearing creamy muslin gloves, leafing through old Cork Corporation council books with copperplate handwriting. Nominations of councillors and aldermen to various council committees, to waterworks and public health, to tolls and markets, to working-class dwellings and technical instruction. Many of the names before me are revolutionary names, names that will become illuminated by the violence of the war that is to intensify as the 1920s go on. 
It is 2009 and the 90th anniversary of the burning of Cork is coming up. My boss, the city librarian, has advised staff that we'll need something to mark the occasion. I'm here to research a small commemorative book on that very subject. It's difficult to exaggerate how important the burning of Cork is in the mental atmosphere of Cork people, how it altered the entire architecture of Cork City's centre and still colours local memory. I haven't admitted this to anyone at work, but I'm beginning to get into a bit of a panic. Time moves quickly when you're trying to write a book, even a small book. Now I turn over pages in the busy reading room, lists and functions, committees and subcommittees, and then a letter, dated 16th of March, 1922. Your subcommittee begged to report for your information the following facts concerning the money to be provided for rebuilding in Cork. As a result of an interview which a deputation from Reconstruction had with Mr Michael Collins, Chairman of the Provisional Government, on the 22nd of February last, it was intimated that with a view to expediting the work of reconstruction in Cork, the provisional government would be in a position to arrange a grant of something like £250,000, which, however, it was pointed out, would not be available at a moment's notice. It was subsequently officially intimated that of this sum, a grant of £50,000 would be made available in mid-April or on the 1st of May. The letter is signed by Donal O'Callaghan, the then Lord Mayor of Cork. The same Donal O'Callaghan had returned from his sensational journey to America, where he had addressed a US Congressional Committee on the burning of Cork. His evidence in Washington, D.C., had a profound effect on American attitudes to the Irish conflict, rendering continued British administration in Southern Ireland politically untenable. When this letter was written, the provisional government of Ireland was hardly a few weeks old. Anti-treaty forces were mustering and arming under Liam Mellows in Dublin and Sean Hegarty in Cork. The country was in chaos, but Michael Collins was already thinking of the rebuilding of his city and the day-to-day practicalities of rebuilding. Now, other letters. Here is a letter from Dermot Fawcett, an old bandon friend of Michael Collins, now his secretary in the Ministry of Finance. Akara, on the second instant, I addressed a communication to the city treasurer and transmitted therewith pay order number 303 in the sum of £10,000. Mr Fawcett was annoyed because he hadn't yet received a receipt. Fawcett was a meticulous man who later became a distinguished judge. An instinct for accuracy and proper bookkeeping was a trait he shared with his charismatic boss. And there are other letters, memos, memoranda, all of the ephemera of a working public administration. Today I think of that insanely busy archive room. I'm remembering my remembering. This is a common enough occurrence in Irish cultural life. 
we are a nation that admires remembrance. Remembering is how we make our conflicts endurable. In the last week, I've been reading essays on how the 1798 Rising was remembered in 1898, how there was conflict between the IRB, the Irish in America, the Irish in Paris, between Maud Gonne and W.B. Yeats, as to how best to remember 98. And in the last few years, there have been many published comments on the Golden Jubilee of 1966. From my own childhood, I can remember vividly the unquestioning and unquestioned chauvinism of that year, when we remembered the men of the rising. It took 50 more years before we even began to remember the women of that same conflict. So, the way we remember also changes. It changes in the way we change. We know things now that we didn't know before, not because the facts have changed, but because we have changed. And as we come to know more about ourselves, we read the same historic documents differently. The archives speak with a new voice. It is a mistake to think of historic archives as a collection of dead, passive things. The more time we spend with them, reading and looking, the more we realise it is history that has arrived to interrogate us. We pick up an unrecorded letter or postcard from a dead statesman or woman and we see their strong character in their handwriting or in a humorous marginal comment. A preserved receipt book or list of committees from the War of Independence or the Civil War reminds us that our forebears were engaged not only in revolutions but in early statecraft. This is the magic of archives. All our local and national collections. It's why we need to support these keepers of memory, these professional hoarders and cataloguers of the past. In a strange way, archives confirm our present moment. Through them, we learn that the past and the present are the same country. That was a special Sunday miscellany programme from the recent archive to mark National Heritage Week with the support of the Heritage Council. The scripts were A Letter from Bradford by Virginia Tian, Early Music by Michal Moli Osulawan, Two Kilkenny Men by Olivia O'Leary, Every House a Statement, a poem by Grace Willens, The Barrow Track by Angela Kyo, and Remembering the Remembering by Thomas McCarthy. The music was Manana Heron by Sean O'Reada, sung by Shibale. The Flower of Maharali, performed by Owen and Michal Moli Osulawain. The Woods of Kilkenny, played by Leisha O'Brien. Hofstetter's Serenade, played by the RTE Vanberg Quartet. And Rivers by Una Keen. And National Heritage Week is currently underway with events all over the country. This year's theme is Living Heritage. You can find out what's happening in your local area at heritageweek.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.